welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. Okay, thank you everyone for joining the show today. This is E-Commerce Innovators, and I am thrilled to have David Barnett. He is the CEO and founder of PopSockets. My name is John LeBaron. I am the Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern. And we love this show. We love inviting super smart, innovative people onto the show. And David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, John. David, tell us a little bit about your role. And for those, I can't imagine anyone of our listeners is not familiar with PopSockets, but if they are not, tell us a little bit about the company. Sure. So I'm the founder of PopSockets and currently the CEO. The company PopSockets just finished its eighth year of business. So we're starting to no longer feel like a startup. It was started in my garage in the mountains of Boulder, outside Boulder. I was a philosophy professor at the time and just tinkering with uh, an invention I had to keep one's headset cords from tangling. And then I started adding extra functionality to it as I developed the invention and turned it into a stand, a grip, a clip a clothing clip, etc. I launched on Kickstarter, the original version of PopSockets, which was a case with two of these grips that would collapse flush in the case and then expand outward. That was 2014. I had no institutional funding. And I met a few people around town over the first couple of years that invested, but I ended up not taking much investment. Started as an online business. I don't think we entered Amazon for at least a year. And how did it blow up? First few years, we had three main sources. So the promotional industry, I got lucky and and got introduced to the promotional industry. So people were giving away our grips with brands printed on them. And that helped fuel the word of mouth because we'd get tens of thousands of these into people's hands and they would tell their friends about them. And then middle school kids, we were seeding middle schools around Denver and the middle school kids loved them. They brought them home. And as we say, they, they brought the virus home back then. This was the only virus people were bringing home, not COVID. And they were infecting the rest of their family members. And then their parents started using them, older brothers and sisters. And then third, celebrities, for some reason, took to our product really early on. We don't know why, but I was getting emails, calls from various celebrities that wanted to invest. And we were lucky enough to have, I don't know, Ryan Seacrest, Gigi Hadid. The Kardashians all use our products. They were using them early on. So those three factors fueled crazy growth. We were the second fastest growing company in the US, according to Inc. 500 in 2018, I believe. Today, we are in over 70 countries. We have offices. Our headquarters are in Boulder. We have offices in San Francisco, Boulder, Bogota, Colombia, Finland, the Netherlands, the UK, Japan, China, Singapore, South Korea. I'm probably missing at least one. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we have about 220 employees and we make a broad range of products. Amazing. So first of all, that sounds like a very busy job that you have. And I really appreciate you making some time carving it out because I, I know there are probably a million demands of your time right now. So fascinating. Honestly, it sounds a little bit like accidental entrepreneurship. What was the trajectory and the arc for you? As a professional, had you already always planned on being an academic? You were a professor. Like, tell us a little bit about the early days of David Barnett. Sure. 
let me tell you two things. One, I just have to comment on the accidental entrepreneurship first, and then I'll tell you how this came about. A friend of mine calls me the luckiest man on earth, and that's because of the accidental success of Pop Sockets. I mean, there's two big accidents there. First, the problem I was solving for myself was tangled headset cords, but that's not what people use the product for today. It evolved into a grip. So just by accident, I came upon something that, that was highly useful in another aspect. It reminds me of Rogaine. Is that the right? The hair, hair growing solution that was originally used as a circulation, I think, blood circulation. And they noticed patients were growing hair all over their bodies. (laughs) Um, So it's a little bit like that. And then the second big accident is that phones grew into my invention. So early on, phones were tiny. The first iPhone, it was nice to have a grip, but it was certainly not essential. And then as phones have grown bigger, grips have become essential for one-handed use, like really good control of your phone with a single hand. Yeah. Okay. So there is a lot of accident to the success, but then my own story, I was a greedy little hustler as a kid. So I was an entrepreneur as a kid. I had all sorts of businesses, had a lawn mowing business. I had a bicycle repair business, even though I didn't know how to repair bicycles. I was way overconfident. I was building gadgets for people. I don't know. I remember I built a stereo stabilizer, this thing that would hold someone's portable stereo on the floor of their car and sold it to the person when I saw they needed that. I was just always looking to make a buck. Yeah. My nickname was H. Ross Perot around the neighborhood. Anybody over the age of 40, I'm guessing, knows who that is. Yeah. He ran for president a long time ago. He was an entrepreneur. And then I got, I thought I'd be a business person. I got distracted by the world of ideas. I got interested in physics, started studying physics. Then I moved over to philosophy, philosophy of physics. Got a PhD in philosophy. I ended up doing research in philosophy of the mind, philosophy of language, metaphysics. I hate to say that word because it means something different to most people than, than what it does in philosophy, but the nature of, of reality in the world. And became a philosophy professor before returning to the life of doodads. <laughs> so was this kind of just again, and I love by the way that greedy little hustler. I feel like I need a t shirt with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Put that on your kid. Yeah, totally. I've got a few of those in my household. So you were a professor, and where were you a professor? Let's see. I started at Davidson College in North Carolina, and then I moved to University of Vermont for a couple of years. Then I moved to University of Colorado. I was temporarily at NYU, but I was at University of Colorado when I quit my career in philosophy and went all pop sockets. So it wasn't like a little stint, like you were in academia, you were a professor. How long were you a professor? I was, I was in it so long, I was burnt out. I had been burnt out for a few years in philosophy. I was, I don't know, say 10 years, which was enough for me. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you do the side hustle, you try to figure out this product that will turn into this crazy sensation. I mean, did you have any experience in sourcing product or manufacturing? Did you originally manufacture domestically? Did you just go straight? overseas, like tell us a little bit about growing into an executive or an entrepreneur. Sure. I was about to say my only only experience manufacturing was manufacturing ideas. And uh, I had absolutely no experience manufacturing product or with supply chain. That was a big challenge for me. I hired a design firm to help me design the body of the case that I launched on Kickstarter. So I designed the grip on my own, the collapsible grip. And that firm got me connections 
to manufacturers in China that didn't work out actually, but it was at least a start. And then it was, I don't know if you want to hear the whole story, but it was painful. It was years of a lot of pain, a lot of defective product, a lot of lost money until I found suppliers that I could trust. Yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned earlier, kind of started online, Amazon, I guess, at some point, promotional category. I don't know when you ended in kind of retail. I mean, you guys have like a ton of different retail distribution points from like convenience, probably to club, to specialty retail, to mass retail. So maybe help us understand kind of that arc. And obviously, Kickstarter, that gives you a little bit of seed. How did you kind of start to put... How did you stay in business, basically, and put all the different pieces together? Because that that's pretty tricky to try to stage everything. Sure. The seed from Kickstarter lasted roughly three weeks. So that was not a lot. I spent my all my personal savings. I was lucky enough to have my house burned down, actually, in some fires in Colorado. It's called the Four Mile Fire in 2010. Right as I was inventing the product, I ended up using the money to replace the contents of the home to start a business. So I had an empty house for until pretty recently. I had my mattress on the floor, very little furniture, nothing replaced. Put that into Pop Sockets. And then over the first couple of years, I raised, I don't know, roughly four or five hundred thousand dollars just from various people I met around town that liked the idea. And then of course we started making money through the website, some independent retailers, a little bit of Amazon, but not much. And the promotional industry, it was just luck. I mean, we were on the verge of of going under the whole time, the first couple of years, I'd say, until we made our first big retail deal. And finally had some cash in the bank. And that was with Sam's Club. We made two deals at once. So T-Mobile and Sam's Club. But Sam's Club is what put some serious money in the bank account. And finally, I could sleep at night knowing that we were not going to run out of money the next day. And that was probably nearly two years into it. Yeah. The end of 2015. And that was just from... That was from Crazy Hustle at these shows at CES, Consumer Electronics Show. My sister and I would grab every single person that passed our little booth in a horrible location and give them product demonstration. We were exhausted. Yeah. And near the end of the show, we grabbed some people, made them watch the demonstration. And they turned out to be from Sam's Club. And we got the deal. That's so awesome. And you're probably the first person I've ever heard of that has uttered those words. I was lucky enough to have my house burned down. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Okay, so you get two years in, the hustle, the grind, finally you're seeing probably a light at the end of the tunnel to some degree or at least some modicum of stability. I guess at what point I've got to think once people realized this was a thing, because in a way you kind of created the category as yeah. well. And it was, to your point, these crazy tailwinds happening with mobile. Like I think everyone knew they would have a phone, but they didn't know they'd have a computer in their pocket. And you were kind of, I guess the iPhone was a thing for sure when you started, but they were big iPhones and and then Android and all these other areas. So you're at the confluence of all these different kind of macro trends happening. Maybe walk us through a little bit like protecting the brand, protecting the IP that you really were the scientist behind. I've got to think people were and still are coming out of the woodwork to rip you off and try to latch onto those tailwinds. Talk us through that piece of it. There are such people. I will not name names. (laughs) I won't name names, but you are absolutely right. Those people exist. You know who you are out there. So that's another, another case of some luck and threading the needle. I can tell a story 
what's the expression? A tale of two tales, a story of two tales. Anyway, two different stories right next to each other. I had a friend that had an invention back in 2011. I met this person. He invented the magnetic mount in cars that's so popular. Oh, yeah. He was the original inventor of this. He, I don't think his business exists today because of the problems you just described. So he was highly successful to begin with on Amazon. He just got overwhelmed by fakes. I mean, he couldn't afford the fight, couldn't defend his intellectual property, and his revenues just dropped because the fakes took over the market quickly. I was lucky enough to just have just the right trajectory and get ahead of it early. So early on, I filed my patents. I hired somebody to be in charge of brand protection. I hired her. When I hired this person, she had come from Otterbox, who had their own share of challenges with fakes. When I hired her, she said, you know, yeah, I'll probably need to work a couple of days a week for you. We'll get things set up. And then once we get things set up, maybe pull back to a half a day a week. Within a month, she was full-time. Oh, man. And within two months, she was hiring people beneath her. And then I'd say within six months to a year, we were by some measures the most counterfeited product in the world. And what are those measures? It was the number of takedowns on marketplaces like Amazon. We were taking down thousands of listings for fakes a day. So it became the product to rip off. It's the perfect product to rip off, right? Except for the fact we have IP. So ultimately, they lost. Right. Um, our intellectual property eventually won the day for us. But for a while, it was a rough fight. We closed up the borders with something called, it's an exclusion order from the International Trade Commission. So they issue three or four of these, our government, three or four a year, telling customs agents to confiscate products that infringe a utility patent. And so the customs agencies do their best to close up the borders and just stop the influx of these fakes. That really helped. And then it helped us start to clean up the Amazon marketplace, start to clean up physical stores. So we invested heavily. At one point, we were spending $7 million a year on these fights around the world. I was testifying at The Hague in Washington, D.C., wow. in London. I was preparing for battle. We've had many years of, of legal battles to defend our intellectual property. And it's the only way we've survived. Yeah. Well, you know, again, the theme of the podcast, e-commerce innovation, and I would say innovation broadly. And as I listen to you, I mean, like innovation in your career, first and foremost, right? Then innovation in the product, right? Innovation in the business model. Innovation in the business strategy, I think for you to get that early and far ahead of it and not get you know inundated by the tsunami of fakes and counterfeits and, and everything else, that's just absolutely wild and somewhat counterintuitive, right? Like you're scrappy, you're trying to build a business. And I think a normal, whatever, like a person like me, <laughs> an idiot... Would have, like, no, we just got to like, build the business. We got to keep like trying to outrun that counterfeit and instead having to take that measured approach and stop and say, no, 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 no. We actually have to like put up the dam first. Otherwise, there's no way you're ever going to be able to outrun it and invest that much. It must have just been so painful to have to invest that much knowing that you're just trying to stem that tide and you can't truly invest in the brand and, and all those other things. It's, it's a lot of defense. But man, that feels like it paid off in a really spectacular way in the end. It did pay off. It was painful. I remember actually people telling me, the first person I hired, uh, Kelly, to defend our, our intellectual property, she said, well, you should be flattered that you have so many people ripping you off. <laughs> and I got to tell you, at the time, I was not flattered. I was quite irritated. 
Yeah, you're like seven million bucks to Phil Flattered. How lucky am I? That's that's yeah. amazing. That's crazy. Okay, tell us about any other innovations that kind of come to mind, either early days or even today. I mean, how do you kind of keep innovation alive at the company? How do you foster a culture of innovation? Sure. Let's see. Some innovation since the first grip. I'll just list a few. I mean, we evolved that grip to being a swappable grip. You can collapse our grip now and twist it and the whole top, including the accordion, twist right off so that you can swap out grips easily for style, different functionality. Also for wireless charging, if the grip isn't compatible or if you don't have one of our slides or MagSafe grips, you might want to just twist off the top. So turning them into swappable grips and then, gosh, where to begin? We have spinning grips. We now have spinning grips that can control features of the phone. Those will be coming out at at some point. So I won't say more about that, but that's on the horizon. We have grip on a slide. So it allows you, it connects to your phone by something that with little hands that grab the sides of your phone. You can slide it up and down. So you have a portrait stand and a landscape stand. You can slide it off if you don't want it really easily. You can slide it down for MagSafe charging or wireless charging. We have a grip in a case now. We just launched our first case, highly protective case. It comes with a grip with a slide on it. We have grips with wallets. So you can carry a few credit cards, ID, and it has a grip on it. It attaches to the back of your phone. Trying to think other ways to grip. We have a MagSafe grip now. MagSafe is for iPhones. The more recent versions of iPhone have magnets in the back of them. So you can attach things to the backside of the phone, including a wireless charger or our grip now. So I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of grip. We have all sorts of different functional grips too, from lip balm to mirrors to something like a Swiss army knife, something called a SOG tool, spinning grips with ball bearings in them. So that's sort of in the grip category, but then we built up other categories. So we did pioneer the grip category, but we came in and we have taken a big chunk of the mount category since we've come in. So we have a broad range of mounts, dash mounts, desk mounts, wall mounts, vent mounts. And uh, I don't know, I'll stop talking about it. Broad range products, some of them innovative, others fairly straightforward utility products. And how do we keep that up? We've got a great team of designers, industrial designers, engineers, and then just really passionate employees who give their ideas. So ideas are welcome from anybody inside the company. They're welcome from outsiders too. Today, we've yet to use an idea from an outsider. Not because they're not welcome, but I think because we're thinking about these things every day. And so it's just, it's hard to find something novel from the outside world, given how much thought we've put into all the different things we could do next. There's no low-hanging fruit. No, <laughs> not anymore. Well, one of the things I think that's you know really fascinating about the company, and, and maybe we'll actually get into that in a second, because given, again, that this is the e-commerce podcast, maybe just let me ask you this, like, how would you characterize your e-commerce strategy? In a way, the whole company has shifted in the last couple of years around our e-commerce. We're trying to build a, you know, just a top-notch, global, excellent direct-to-consumer business. And it will have a halo effect for the rest of our business. So our marketplace businesses, our retail business, etc. It already is having that halo effect. But what we're trying to do is ensure that we have a brand first strategy. And by that, I mean, we're not pushing product onto pegs and saying to distributors, retailers, you know, any of our partners, go sell this product and you need to sell more. Now you need to sell three times as more. We're not pushing the product through. We're trying to create that pull by creating great product, by creating great experiences, both with the product and also 
at touch points with our brands. So social media, our website, email, in-store, wherever somebody has an experience with our brand, we want to improve that experience and then deepen it too. So hopefully get in touch with that person and communicate with them regularly. Hopefully they start following our social media. Hopefully they care about our mission, which we could talk about at some time today. So the e-commerce strategy is all around deepening that engagement and building the community and not simply driving more traffic to our website uh, and trying to convert. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Let's talk about that. I'm, I'm really actually interested in the mission and how it dovetails with the rest of you know, the go-to-market strategies and the company as a whole. Sure. So our mission is to build an eternal positivity machine. Now, I doubt anyone's ever said that to you either before. That and the fire. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It that. sounds fancy, but if you break it down, it's not. So eternal, that's just hyperbole for long-lasting. We're trying to build a brand that's here to stay, a brand that's not dependent on, on the smartphone. It's not just a mobile accessories company, but a, a true lasting brand. It's global in nature, partly to keep it on a firm foundation. So that's the eternal part. Positivity, that's the impact we make on the world. So we aim to have a growing net positive impact on the world. Everything we do, including the materials we use, you know, our carbon footprint, the amount of happiness we create when we put products in people's hands, and also all the partnerships that we've had and that we will have in the future with charities, so nonprofits, and everything else we can do to improve the planet, the health and happiness of the planet. So we care deeply about climate change. I personally care deeply about animal welfare, helping to end factory farming. And I don't know, we have all sorts of initiatives. So we've raised millions of dollars for a broad range of, of charities over the last few years, but we intend to do much more in the future. Each year, when we start off the year, we give three high-level goals for, to our company. But one of them every year is make a greater positive impact than we did last year. And you know we're trying to measure this and make sure that we are better and better every year. And we're turning a company that was founded on accident, as you said, it was founded because I happened to invent something, convert that into a company for good, whose mission really is to make a growing positive impact on the world. I love that. I think anytime anyone who is successful could use their platform, whether it's fame, whether it's money, whether it's you know, just innovation or other sort of social currency, amplify it for something greater, I think is, is obviously not to get too philosophical here, but hopefully is the purpose of the existence, right? So I think that's fantastic. And I did notice on the website, you know, plant-based grips or, or phone cases, et cetera. I thought that was just fascinating. I wanted to kind of dig deeper into that. So maybe the other question that I had earlier or, or commentary was really around the innovation that I've seen on the brand. because there are a lot of brands that try to stay hip or cool or whatever. And some of that is aided by things like celebrities and things like that. But you know, if you go to your website or your Amazon listings or whatever, one of the things that I've been perpetually kind of enamored by, and, and we see a lot of different brands by virtue of our position and working with great brands, it, it's hard. It's hard to stay hip. It's hard to stay cool, especially in this newest age of you know, reels and TikTok and, and all this other stuff. It's hard to maintain a, a pulse. And you can quickly end up, I mean, I saw this advertisement, I won't say who it was, but of, of this kind of like computer peripheral type company. And man, they were just trying really hard to be cool and hip. And I was just like, 
dang it. Like there's just a miss. Like the eighth graders today call it tryhards, right? And it's like, uh. so how do you navigate that? I mean, there's a certain level of just authenticity in you and the company, et cetera, that allows you to kind of maintain that. But I don't know, how do you architect the brand around that? How do you stay in the front of that and not get kind of outdated quickly? Because you're now, to your point, you're like past puberty or whatever yeah. you want to talk about in the brand life cycle. Sure. I think the term the eighth graders use is, is called, I'm going to mispronounce it, but I think it's Chugi, C-H-U-E-G-E, something like that. It's the tryhard or the Chugi. Yes. So I should say, look, we haven't been 100% successful here. We've had our failures. Maybe I'll start with the failures. And here's how we failed. We started off highly popular among middle schoolers. That's how we got, we started, got our start. The middle schoolers loved our product. They shared them with their family. Their parents loved them, their older brothers and sisters. And then I think we ended up sort of chasing our success, which is a warning, I think, and something I've tried to avoid, but I didn't in this case. We chased our success upward in age, and our sweet spot became that 24 to 40-year-old, leaning a bit female, but we have our, our share of male fans too. That's what happened. It aged up because we followed probably we're following the money too. Those are the people with the money. So they're buying the product. And then we say, oh, these are the people buying the product. So let's make our creative appeal to them. Let's design products for these people. But we really lost touch with the 12 to 24-year-olds. And we're just now trying to re-engage with Gen Z. Basically, I say re-engage with Gen Z. It wasn't Gen Z when we were first engaged. It was the millennials. But now we're trying to re-engage with that age group by engaging with Gen Z. And I can't say that we are if I told you we're cool among Gen Z, that, that's just not true. We're not. Plenty of Gen Z members love our brand, but I would say the majority don't think we're the coolest brand in the world and we need to regain their trust. How do we need to do that? You use the word authentic. I think that's absolutely right. So it's not a game of figuring out how to create a false emotional connection by selling them some shitty product. I think that's what a lot of marketers think is the purpose of marketing. You take a shitty product, and then you think of some way to create a false emotional connection with that product that distinguishes your product from all the products next to it on the shelf. That is not what we want to do. We want to create something that's truly valuable for this generation, for the community. And then we want to present it to them in a way that shows them that we appreciate what they value. So we need to connect to them in a way where they realize that we have put a lot of effort into understanding who they are, what they like, and how they'd like to be approached. And then hopefully we can work together as a community to, on the mission, right? Gen Z cares very much about making a positive impact in this world. So hopefully we'll get them on board and amplify our impact. That's our strategy. How have we done relatively well so far? Same strategy, being authentic, trying to stay away from hokey marketing, inauthentic approaches, not having a fear-based approach concern of losing some customer and have us I don't know, come out with some statement, say, on some controversial issue. We're, we're not worried about upsetting one person or another. We will be authentic when we make statements on what we care about and our mission. So you nailed it with authentic. I think that's right. Also design, keeping on the cutting edge with design trends. Well, a lot of awesome colors, a lot of great photography, a lot of, you know, again, just self-expression. And maybe that's just another topic. Yep. I think it'd be really interesting to to kind of focus on is just that piece. I mean, it really is an interesting, I think part of what allows you to stay somewhat, you know, current, so to speak, is just the fact that it is such an intimate product in a way. And so 
tied to you and your vibe as a person or, you know, and I love that, like the interoperability of the product, switch things out on one day, but that can be tricky, right? Because there's this customization aspect of it. There's also this partnership slash licensing aspect. We haven't even really gotten into any of that, but it's, I mean, you can show your favorite NBA team or football team or, you know, whatever that looks like. How have you navigated that kind of desire for people to self-express? Because that can be pretty tricky on the back ends. Again, just from a straight, choose this color, put this word on it. Maybe that was grown or arose out of the early days in the promotional category, ability to kind of do that stuff. But just walk us through that aspect of the brand and the company. Self-expression is core to our brand. So we say that we have three components to our DNA, our product DNA, self-expression, empowering or the utility component, uh, and then the sort of fun slash magical component separates our product from a lot of the competition. It's not fun to fidget with. It's not surprisingly fun to use once you have it on your device. So self-expression is key. I'm guessing by the time this podcast actually airs, our website will have something different on the homepage. But right now, I wish people could see it. Something good will be up there. It is all about self-expression right now in our Hero Slider, this Blitz campaign that we just launched this week. But if anything, says self-expression, it's that big photo right there of a couple people just expressing themselves in every way they can. Living their best Um, life. Yeah. Living a good life, really being who they are. So you're right, though. It presents challenges. And these challenges really scared my early investors that I told you about. When they saw me messing around in my garage with a dye sublimation press, after they invested money and they're thinking, what is this guy doing? He's yeah. got to get this business off the ground and he's tinkering in his garage every day with these big irons, trying to get ink to sublimate into his product. He's crazy. So they kept telling me, quit messing with customization, quit messing with different colors. Like just stop that and focus on yeah. a black grip and get that going for a year or two. And then you can introduce other colors. And then after a couple of years, you could introduce some graphics. And then you could introduce customization, but don't try to do everything all at once. That's crazy. There's one thing an entrepreneur should do. It is focus. Anyway, I said, no way. I'm going with a shotgun approach here. I'm going to try everything I can and see what sticks. And that was one, you know, I certainly wasn't right about everything, but I was right about that. Had I not done that, I don't think we would have survived because it turns out a huge element of our success centers on self-expression and being able to support it from a supply chain perspective. So we have, we have a huge number of SKUs, thousands of different SKUs. A lot of them are quite expensive to develop. We have three-dimensional grips. We have, like I say, grips with electronics in them. We have just all sorts of shapes and functionality and different products and so many different graphics. We allow people to upload their own graphics onto our products, onto quite a few products on our website. So it's a complicated supply chain for a company our size but we've learned how to operate it relatively efficiently. We can always improve. And when we design at the very beginning of the design phase, we try to design a product to address these challenges that you're raising so that it's minimal impact to the supply chain, even though we know that it will come out in a number of different graphics and styles and hopefully enable customization. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that strikes me too is, I don't know if you've actually picked up or bought a pop sockets, hopefully a lot, the packaging, I mean, we, we talked about this earlier, like it's not this amazing game-changing experience to like hold it, the grip or, or whatever. But again, one of the things and I think Apple did a really good job innovating on this front years ago, and they still do to this day, but like buying a pop socket grip is kind of cool. 
That's one of the things that actually really stuck with me the first time I got one was like, holy cow, this packaging might have cost more than the grip itself <laughs> because it's like color. Sometimes it's like bejeweled. You get spot varnishes on it. Like it's a really yeah. cool experience. And I don't know, if, I mean, I, that has to have been by design, but I was always yeah. curious about that aspect of it because it feels, you notice it. it is an experience to pick it up and hold it. And I don't know if that's like, you don't want it to feel cheap or you don't want it to feel like you want it to feel differentiated. You want to feel like it's an actual brand, but maybe, yeah. I mean, you must've had a hand in a lot of that because it has to cost a fortune to, to do something. Well, Tell us about that. So it was built, the packaging was built around our DNA. So we wanted the packaging to reflect the DNA. At first, you're absolutely right. It was very expensive producing that packaging as much as some of the product. So you're spot on. Over the years, we got the cost of that packaging down, down, down. It's environmentally friendly packaging. So it comes from environmentally friendly materials. It's fully recyclable. This is the problem today we face is that it doesn't read as environmentally friendly. So I think most people, when they have it in their hand and they look at the trash can or recycling, think to themselves, no way could you recycle this. Yeah. And they, they probably throw it in the trash, which is not good. So we are in the midst of a redesign to broadcast to customers that, oh, no, 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 this is fully recyclable packaging and you should certainly put it in the recycling, not in the trash. Anyway, that's the story behind it. And hopefully we can retain the brand DNA while also broadcasting that message. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, well, I could go on forever and just keep asking questions. I think it's just so fascinating to listen to entrepreneurs tell their story and all the different journeys we've gone by. So maybe I'll give you a little bit of a choose your own adventure because I don't know, I don't think we have time to cover both of these. And I think the audience would be interested in either one. The first one would just be more, and I think you've covered actually a lot of these. So maybe, maybe we don't go down this path, but one is just some of the challenges, you know, some of the mistakes, some of the hard things that you had to learn. I mean, you went from this being a professor to being a CEO. You've now been a CEO, hopefully longer than you were ever a professor. What are some of those major things you kind of learned as your skin got tougher over the years? And the other one, and maybe you can combine them both, is just more like, I'm sure you get asked a lot for advice, people starting their companies, starting a new brand, aspiring entrepreneurs. What do you kind of tell them? So I don't know, feel free to Choose that fork in the road as a somewhat of a concluding thought. Sure. Maybe I could weave them together. So challenges, my greatest challenges were supply chain. So we mentioned that. And sure. So I'll weave it together with the second question. I strongly recommend to anybody out there who's starting their own business and it involves manufacturing a physical product that you, you get a good partner who has experience there. So I could have saved myself so much pain. Sure. I learned plenty, but the learning was not worth the pain. I had so much pain from having the wrong suppliers, not understanding what agreements to form with these people, not understanding how to find the right manufacturers, how to get the product to the US. I did it all on my own, aside from a few references of who to use, but I had no expert next to me, which relates to another piece of advice on something I failed on. More generally, I had my head down, my nose in the business so much that I never got to know other entrepreneurs. I never became start of a, part of a startup community in Boulder. And these communities are all over the world now. So I strongly recommend that people become a member of any community they can find of startups, entrepreneurs, to get that expertise that they might lack. That also would have saved me a huge amount of pain and a lot of mistakes. And then my next big challenge was hiring. I had been a philosophy professor. The only person I'd ever hired was a philosopher. Philosophers really don't come in handy for much. 
much at all, <laughs> unless you're trying to solve some question that nobody cares about. So I didn't know how to hire. And it's not just that I didn't know how to hire. I had no idea when I was interviewing someone, whether I had just interviewed the best person in the world for that position or the worst person in the world, because that was my only data point, one person. So it took years and years of experience for me to start to understand the sort of talent that PopSockets can attract, what counts as a strong talent. And the cliche is absolutely true that it's all about the people. So when it, to tie that into a, advice, people will say it's all about the team. It's all about the team. It's absolutely right. It's all about the team. Okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration, right? You could theoretically have an amazing team and a horrible idea. Yeah. But what are the odds, right, that you have this highly talented team and no one on the team realizes the idea is just so bad, it's not going anywhere? Pretty unlikely. If you have a really strong team, the, the team will recognize that it's a bad idea and you need to pivot. You need a new idea. You need to take the data that you have and go in a different direction. So, yes, as far as advice to people, surround yourself with experts, hire well. It's all about the people. Surround yourself. I love that idea of like finding that community, finding that tribe that you can really pick their brains and surround yourself with. I mean, you've got to be okay with failure. If this is your first time being an entrepreneur, expect to fail and hopefully you'll be okay with it. So just imagine that whatever it is you're going to try fails. If you're not okay with that, then entrepreneurship's not for you. You've got to be okay failing, failing, failing before you succeed. So you have to be a bit tenacious in that respect and probably a little overconfident so entrepreneurs tend to be overconfident i don't know if it, i guess that that entails that they're cocky or arrogant but in some respect they have to be to take these risks that mo most people aren't willing to take yeah well i mean i just i do love that reality distortion field a little bit of like i don't care how complicated it is i am going to start with 20 different versions so it's true you have to be a little bit probably neurotic and a little bit like just staring down the face of, of fact and just going yeah. something somewhat ancillary. I mean, what better example than Elon Musk for that? To point out that quality, I mean, what an incredibly arrogant guy. But just think to yourself, how could someone without that arrogance pull off what this guy's pulled off? I mean, it is insane what he's done. Yeah. Just amazing what he's done. And he's overcome so many crazy challenges that almost anyone else on earth would have just said, I give up. But he just keeps going. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, I guess I just express my appreciation on behalf of our organization that's partnered with yours for many years, but also I think you're doing a lot, you know, probably in service of your company, but really what's happening on the periphery, especially on legislation, on the trade commissions, on all the stuff that you've pioneered around control and preventing counterfeit, preventing monopolies, preventing extension of power from other large organizations, I think is really great. I think it is paving the way for other entrepreneurs to be successful and not get trampled on by right. whether it's government, whether it's big organizations, whether it's counterfeits or other governments or, or things like that. I think it's awesome. And I think it really speaks to that mission that you talked about earlier of being eternal, right? Or being long lasting, of adding a net positive impact and, and kind of bringing happiness. So I yeah, love all of that. And as a dad, I think I am going to try to get a t-shirt that says, try to, <laughs> try to answer questions no one cares about for 20 years or whatever. So greedy hustler. Yeah, I've got so many good t-shirt ideas. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners will appreciate it as well. 
and have a fabulous weekend. And we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. That was fun. All right. Appreciate it. Take care.